0: most selective universities absolutely control their destiny and you know and so those could be everything from the ivy league schools and elite private institutions to major power 5 football conference division 1 public you know higher <coughs> educational institutions their enrollments and applications
1: are off the charts this is sure In Your Ears, the official podcast series of the Shore Initiative. The Student Housing and University Real Estate Initiative is an international membership, data analytics, and content source for planners in university real estate and student housing with the mission to improve student lives and enhance the built environment in university neighborhoods. The Initiative interviewed Fred Pierce, president and CEO of Pierce Education Properties, commonly known as PEP, a leading US student housing investment and operating business. In addition to his real estate investment and development company, Mr. Pierce is very active with post-secondary institutions. In fact, Mr. Pierce is a trustee emeritus of the 482,000 student 23 campus, California State University system. In addition, Mr. Pierce is chairman of the board of trustees of Franklin Pierce University and chairman of the NMHC Student Housing Research Fund Advisory Board. Mr. Pierce is also involved in the Campanile Foundation, SDSU's Fowler College of Business Board, SDSU's Corky McMillan Center for Real Estate, SDSU Mission Valley Campus Residential Advisory Board, Sonoma State University's Wine Business Institute, University of Georgia's Residential Property Management Advisory Board, and the Beta Theta Pi Foundation, among others. In this short interview, Mr. Pierce answered timely questions about the university operating environment today. Mr. Pierce offered analysis of priorities for university executives in the post-pandemic period. Trends involving university real estate entities, such as property trust, as well as enrollment fluctuations in U.S. institutions. And finally, you will hear from Mr. Pierce, offering analysis of federal involvement in the education system. Okay, question number one. Post-pandemic, are you finding that university boards and leadership have changed priorities? For example... Is there more focus on food service, security, and or campus health services?
0: So it's an interesting question because during COVID uh, and the pandemic, we all saw what happened, right? Universities immediately pivoting to 100% online course delivery and, and moving all the students off campus, right? Like in April of 2020, Everybody shut down and everybody sent everybody home. And then that next fall, the, the common theme was dedensification, right? Anybody who was open or partially open was all in a masked environment, you know, and had, you know, testing and vaccinations. They de-densified dorms to the tone that only 30 to 50 percent of the design capacity was actually occupied as as people were figuring out what the whole thing was. And questions kept coming up. Oh my gosh, are developers and universities gonna start designing buildings differently? Um, You know, I mean, we had an issue where at San Diego State, they closed uh, 75% of their dorms uh, because they had uh, gang bathrooms at the end of the hall and they couldn't figure out how to socially distance in gang bathrooms, right? And did that say, are, are people now going to be building things without gang bathrooms? And what we've not seen post-pandemic is our, our, our gigantic movements or changes. It's been much more of a reversion to the mean and, and much more of back to back to normal a couple of things I can say that I've seen as trends that I think will, will continue, which is COVID uh, exacerbated an already existing challenge amongst youth with mental health issues. And those mental health issues are real universities have to deal with mental health services. So health services used to be, you know, more about, you know, you pick it, you get the the flu, you get a cold, you get a venereal disease, whatever it is, and you're in the health services, you know, uh, department or office at the university. Today, mental health issues are gigantic and they're here to stay. Universities are needing to deal with them and they got exacerbated because of the stress during, during COVID. And so that's now real and here to stay and including evolution of curriculum, you know, in mental health counseling. So we, we've even got more professionals that can go into into that field. The other that I think is here to stay is, is hybrid course delivery. And if you compare K-12 education, which was wholly... Uh, uh, inadequate in, in being prepared to convert to online course delivery. Whereas most universities already were doing some form of distance learning or online learning you know, uh, education. So they had the infrastructure in place. So when they pivoted, uh, it's not like it was perfect, but it was pretty darn good. And so now, what we're seeing is is uh, universities reevaluating the delivery of courses and seeing it. And I think it's rather than going completely online, which would be a mistake. Students don't like it. The quality of the educational delivery is not the same as in person. I don't see that taking over the world. I see I see distance learning as a hundred percent of the way a course is delivered is simply expanding access to higher education for people in remote areas that can't get to a physical location and still wanna have education or non-traditional students, older students, re-entry students where that's gotta be the delivery mechanism for them. But hybrid delivery is different. It's where part of the course is online and part of the course is in person and you know at the university that i chair uh, at franklin pierce we've got a really cutting edge program in our doctor of physical therapy program you know where some of the stuff that's just done in a classroom can now be done remotely and other clinical parts of the program have to be done in person and so we've got a, a hybrid model approved by our accrediting agency that's that's on the cutting edge and and it's really popular amongst the students you know, who can maybe stay where they live and not have to relocate during some of their classroom instructions and then go to the campus center when they need to do clinical work or other work in the classroom that you can't do remotely. So I think that's an interesting one. We also do that. You know, I'm on the board at, uh, at uh, the Wine Business Institute at Sonoma State University, and we have a wine MBA where a cohort spends a couple of weeks in Sonoma a couple of weeks in Adelaide, Australia, and a couple of weeks in Bordeaux, France, you know, in the field with wineries, learning you know incredibly, and then the course room instruction can be done online, and so it's it's a hybrid delivery, right? It's it's the same course with both in person, in that case, some travel as well. I think that's something that that came out of uh, COVID, where the uh, capability of universities was honed even better, and I think they'll find better ways to have courses delivered in the way
1: that's most efficient and interesting for students. All right. <clears throat> Question uh, number two. What is the trend with on-campus real estate decision-making at the university stakeholder level? I'm sorry, I repeat that. What is the trend with on-campus real estate decision-making at the university stakeholder level? Are you finding universities continuously moving to a property trust model in their real estate professionally managed or in some other direction? If so, what is the real estate entity at those universities?
0: Yeah, so 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 generally, I don't think there is a singular model of the structure of the kind of entity that it's in. It has to do with local politics, uh, expertise, philosophy of, of boards and university presidents. What I can say the common denominator seems to continue to be is that the real estate function is sophisticated, is very important. It's a it's a hugely important. It's, it's almost like saying, you know, is McDonald's uh, a burger company? or are they a real estate company? And McDonald's is, is much more a real estate company than they are necessarily a, a restaurant. And, and universities nowadays, they're big time real estate operators, but they do it through different models. And I don't think that the model is, is, is what matters, but the fact is the university wants to manage it. They wanna control it. Um, and by way of example, Uh, Brian, I had mentioned an off-campus, a new campus of San Diego State, the the Mission Valley campus. And here's one example of what they're doing real estate-wise. They are master ground leasing parcels, blocks, to developers to build apartment buildings, conventional apartment buildings, in in exchange for ground lease revenue. However, they're going to have multiple blocks that are going to be mixed-use projects with ground-level retail. And the university wanted to control the retail. They wanted to control the tenant mix. So unlike being in like an urban or a downtown area where different developers own different blocks and there's no synergy per se in the in the merchandising strategy of the retail, it's whatever each of them can fend for themselves, here, the university, in this case, through its Aztec Shops affiliate, um, that's not the important part, but that's who handles all of their their retail leasing, whether it's on campus and they, the campus owns its own Starbucks franchise or whether they have a, a food court with multiple you know tenants in their food court. Well, they've got experience in doing that. So their master leasing all of this ground level retail space back from the developers and then the university is subleasing that so they can control the merchandising plan and so that's just one example of how the university can keep control uh, and still have a deal that makes economic sense with ground leases so just an interesting you know uh, case study of how one uh, university is trying to control the retail storefronts um
1: you know in something where private developers are going to run the housing Question number three builds on the prior question and your answer. Uh, The terminology we are hearing is master playing in campus visions. Uh, Is it your opinion that universities are looking to become more active landlords and engage with uh, cities and their municipalities? Would So kind of building on the last question. Yes. So,
0: so, so yes, it is related to the prior question, but this has been a multi-decade trend where universities have wanted to control their environment surrounding them. And the more urban that they are, the more important this activity is so that they've got, you know, a real estate office that, you know, before the definition of a university real estate office 25 years ago would be that they would accept gift real estate. So if a loan or a benefactor wants to donate a piece of real estate, then the university would accept it and then turn around and sell it because they just wanted the money from it, right? It was a donation. And they would deal with, if they had to go lease space off campus, maybe they've got a satellite program that's offering, you know, adult education and they want to be in a downtown area, they need to go lease a building or a part of a building. And that was what the real estate office did. Today, more and more and more, the real estate offices are also taking on specific off-campus acquisitions in the sphere of influence of the university and basically land banking the real estate uh, until they can get enough contiguous parcels assembled where they can then undertake projects. And so, you know, the university as real estate developer, there's even a book out there called The University as Real Estate Developer by Dr. Vim Vivel. Uh, who used to be, I think, uh, the president of Portland State. Uh, and, uh, and so, yes, this has been going on for decades, but it's, it's an essential activity of universities now to, have, to be active real estate entrepreneurs and, and acquirers.
1: Question number four. Uh, are you seeing any big picture trends with enrollments in the U.S. overall, across the country, and, and by region?
0: Yeah, and I'm really glad you asked this question, Brian, because I think this is misunderstood um, because it's being looked at at the super macroeconomic level, at the thirty-thousand-foot level. And by by way of example, in the U.S. between the year 2000 and 2010, that decade of the first decade of the new millennium, uh, enrollment in U.S. higher education grew by 38 percent so an average of 3.8% a year that was an enormous enrollment growth then with that was the echo of the baby boom is what they were calling it the kids of the baby boomers were had reached college going age and uh, you know the preponderance of our female population going to college actually surpassed males so today there's a higher percentage of females going to college than there are males and back in the 70s it was the exact opposite you know you maybe had a quarter to a third of the female population going to college and 70 percent of the male population now the male populations in the high 60s and the female populations in the 70s in terms of their percentage college going rate so so some big demographic changes and college going changes but the big one now is that you know, enrollment was largely, uh, level in the United States between 2010 and 2020. So after enormous growth, it leveled off. And, and now you're hearing projections of what they're calling an enrollment cliff. And they're saying that enrollment is going to start to decline, uh, in the U S you know, starting in then in the next several years. And, um, while that does match what's going on with K-12 enrollments and therefore what the high school graduation rate is going to be, what it's produced in higher education is absolutely the haves and the have-nots. And the most selective universities absolutely control their destiny. And, you know, and so those could be everything from the Ivy League schools and elite private institutions to Major Power Five football conference, Division One public, you know, higher educational institutions, their enrollments and applications are off the charts. And so when you're seeing even in the last couple of years, the enrollment uh, trend uh, segregated, you'll find that the most selective have been growing and the least selective have been shrinking. And and that's actually gonna continue where the most selective, in my opinion, are gonna continue to have insatiable demand for enrollment admissions. and, And some other universities that are not very selective And maybe in areas where the uh, demographics aren't so great could even, you know, face extinction. You know, you're you're seeing some small private universities going out of business, you know, because they can't they can't maintain enrollment. That's okay. Attrition in most any industry can be healthy. Uh, You know, you just don't want it to be status quo. But but there is a big difference in selectivity in U.S. and in what the uh, enrollment outlook is.
1: OK, question number five. Uh, We have been hearing stories about the use of real estate changing post pandemic. Uh, social trends such as ordering online and package delivery have accelerated with students spending less social time in common areas such as the dining hall. Uh, Is this a trend you are seeing and will this warrant a new way of designing properties in the future?
0: So uh, so my answer is I don't think it's going to be a gigantic change in the way property is developed in the future. And and I do think that what we saw in the pandemic was that while students were forced to socially distance in the early stages of the pandemic, they came rushing back to college that next fall. And, And the same happened to Kids who lost out on a big chunk of their high school experience because they couldn't be in the classroom and they couldn't do activities with their um, with their friends missed their friends. And, and and while, yes, kids today are on social media like they've never been before, they might be together at a restaurant and talking to each other on their device, if you know what I mean, instead of looking each other in the eyes and talking. But, you know, we're seeing the desire to to congregate and get back together. Uh, I mean, things like a fraternity and sorority life are in like an all time boom in terms of people wanting to join those organizations and and be with other people. And I think we got through the pandemic and, um, you know, and largely America's youth was not um, was not really impacted from a health perspective very much at all. If they got sick, they got a little bit sick, kind of like the flu. You weren't seeing much of the youth in America, you know, uh, uh, dying because of you know because of COVID. And frankly, there's a, in my judgment, there's a, a lot of confusion of the of the phenomenal number of people who did die during COVID. Most were from pre-existing conditions. Uh, most were our elderly, uh, and most I think that that exacerbated a condition that they already had. It was super. Super unfortunate. But, you know, but the youth is not afraid to get together with people because of what they experience in COVID. Maybe the antithesis, they want to get back together. So I, I don't think you're going to see uh, any major changes, you know, in um you know, in construction. Maybe you'll see some in HVAC systems where they'll be specced so that they control the, the, you know, the airflow, you know, better, uh, you know, in a, more, in a more medically safe way because you can build that into infrastructure and I can see some of that. That's not gonna be really very visible to somebody in a building, like you're seeing, you know, the amount of amenity space change or something like that because well, we're not seeing that, that that changing as a result of the pandemic.
1: Question number six relates to uh, mainstream news. Uh, What are your thoughts on recent federal measures like student loan forgiveness? This is certainly one we've seen in the headlines recently and it's mainstream news. What what is your thought on that measure?
0: Yeah, so I've got, I've actually got very, very, um, very strong feelings and views about that. And what I can tell you is that, that what's in the headlines Uh, And the the fear mongers that are out there projecting a crash in the stock market and a crash in the real estate market because people are going to have to start paying their student loans that they've had forgiveness on for the last handful of years. And, you know, you hear numbers like this. The the U.S. outstanding balance of student loans is one point seven five trillion dollars, not billion, one point seven five trillion trillion dollars and about 55 percent of college graduates uh at least at public universities graduated with with student debt so so those figures they can sound daunting uh when you when you look at that but let me let me let me put it this way pre-pandemic uh 2019 the stock market was the highest it's ever been in the United States, and the housing market was the strongest it's ever been as well. And guess what? All those people, and there are 46 million of them that could comprise that $1.75 trillion, they all had that student debt then. They were all still making their student loan payments then, and the markets didn't crash So this is, to me, this is all political rhetoric. And and it's people running for office at the federal level, including for the presidency, thinking if they can get some measurable number of those 46 million people, who, by the way, their average loan balance is about $29,000. Now, you know, is $29,000 of debt at a weighted average interest rate in the high 4% range, which is what the debt rate is, averaged over the last 15 years in the U.S., Do you think that's really changing someone's decision to buy a house because they got $150 a month student loan payment? Um, The answer is no. What's happened in housing in the U.S. is that um, demographic changes and lifestyle changes are such that America's youth, young adults in their 20s and early 30s have deferred buying a house They did it before the pandemic. Uh, They did it not because they had student loans, but because the old style of maybe getting married in your late 20s and starting to have kids and moving to the suburbs, They want to live in urban America. They want to live in the city where there's restaurants and where it's more expensive to rent. And rather than buy maybe a less expensive house in the suburbs, they're renting by choice in America's urban areas. And that's their lifestyle. That's what they want to do. It has nothing to do with that, with a student loan balance. So there's misinformation that's out there. And I think it's because people uh, latched on to the fact that if they told someone they were going to wipe out their debt, Maybe some people are going to vote for them because of that. But, you know, the, the implications and the prognostications are, are nonsense. It, it's, it's not going to crack. The only thing that what is going to impact is impacting now and will into the foreseeable future. The economy and the housing market is inflation and interest rates. Um, you know, I refinanced my mortgage on my house in February of 2022 and I locked in an interest rate of 3.125%. If I was out there getting that mortgage now, that would be an interest rate over 7%. Now that's impacting buying power, right? So that's what you can see that's going to impact these. It's not a student loan and having to pay back a student loan. Uh, It is interest rates and, and inflation and what the Fed does in the U.S. to the underlying interest rate indices. That's what's impacting what's
1: going on. It's not student debt. Good time for that refinance. Time that well. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Uh, so uh, question <clears throat> question seven. Um, should the federal government be involved in post-secondary education? And what could it or should it be doing differently to support students or their academic institutions?
0: So, you know what? I think the federal government should do what it has been doing for decades, and that is to make subsidized student loans available. But you know what's interesting is, um, you know the cost of going to college, tuition and room and board over the last twenty years has skyrocketed. right? it has it has grown well above the rate of inflation. Do you know that the average student loan debt balance over the last twelve years has actually slightly gone down? So that after the 15 years before that, where student debt was 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 growing, and it you know went from in the low ten thousands range to to the 29,000 range, it stayed at that 28 or 29,000 range for the last 12 years. While the cost of education has been going up, some someplace they're saying seven percent a year. So if you think about that, that model seems to be working. You know, we still we've still got strong enrollments, and especially at the best institutions. So what I think the government needs to do is continue to make federal financial aid available. But what they should not do is make those loans and then willy-nilly just, just wipe them away. You know, that, that's not fair to society. That's not fair to the people who paid their student loans off. And these people who, who take, and, and, and again, the average balance is twenty eight dollars to $29,000 dollars. They're gonna get a million dollars in lifetime income, you know, back for that college degree. That's a great investment for our federal government to help make that available, but we shouldn't give that away. You know, they, they, we should hold the people to what they borrowed and, you know, let them take it from all that extra money they're gonna make and pay, pay their loans off. But, but making student loans available is certainly something that needs to happen because we got more. First-generation college students than ever. I think the stat I saw was like 42% of the, you know, the current enrollment at American higher education are first-generation college students. Many of those are coming from lower-income families. We need to make sure they've got the resources to be able to finance their college education. But it's 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 not a fair, you know, thing to do to, to make make higher education free. You know, the 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 cost that it, that it's at uh, and the and the loans that are available, I think, makes sense. We need to keep doing them.
1: Okay, finally, uh, question number eight, let's talk about your business, uh, PEP. Uh, why don't you tell us, you know, how many, uh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> let's talk about your business, PEP. Describe the current por- portfolio, uh, you know, where are you now, total number of units, total number of beds, total number of uh, assets, if you want to give us the updated.
0: Yeah, statistics yeah, there. so to, to put it in context, you know, we've re- remained a top 25, you know, owner and manager of student housing in America every year since student housing business magazines been doing that survey um, with one exception, which was in 2021, we divested 10,000 beds and, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, 2021 is a pretty good year to be a seller. Uh, And, and so we divested 10,000. So we went from, you know, 18,000 to 8,000 beds, but we're growing again. So we, we bought four properties last year. We bought two at Clemson, one at University of Georgia, and one at Iowa State. Uh, we're in ESCO right now on a very large purchase of two properties at a Big Ten university in the in the Midwest, uh, and we're about to launch our first ever commingled fund, and and it's going to be for. Um, as for, for, for modest size, so these are going to be for you know student house purpose built student housing properties of of uh, of ten to forty million dollars. Uh, they're val- going to be value add opportunities. So a lot of acquisition rehab uh, and also some operational turnarounds. And they're going to be at um, public universities with twenty thousand minimum twenty thousand plus undergraduate students or twenty five thousand or more total students at the Power Five Football Conference Universities or at group of five universities uh, in the in a football context if they're in a major metro area. So Orlando or Tampa or San Diego, big urban real estate markets that also have a San Diego State or University of South Florida or University of Central Florida, those markets, or, or a Power Five. And that's that's where we're going. And you know, we're 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 expecting we're probably gonna raise about a hundred million. That will give three hundred million of investment power because we're gonna get sixty-five percent leverage, and we'll be going to those markets. And, you know, we expect that to be, you know, probably 18 months, maybe two years worth of investment volume for us. And, and then we'll probably have a
1: follow-on fund after that. Uh, follow-up question there. Are, are you seeking investors? Are you seeking LPs? What, what are Yes, sir. Uh, Yeah. So so
0: so the fund that's being marketed is um, being marketed to family offices. And for those that don't know that term, that is where it's an uber wealthy, usually billionaires that choose to manage their own investment portfolio by hiring staff that work for them and not giving their money to a Wall Street investment house. Um, You know that, uh, you know, so that's called a family office and they manage their own money or through registered investment advisors who have clients they have portfolios of clients who are themselves accredited investors meaning sophisticated high net worth investors but through those registered investment advisors they'll aggregate their clients so maybe a single office that is of an investment manager might aggregate you know 1 to 5 million dollars of investments from their for their own clients maybe at a and 250 and 500,000 at a pop you know they'll they'll go in so it's through those those two channels is the way we'll be but it will ultimately be you know individual investors with you know investments as low as a hundred thousand. Uh, we still will have our limited partner relationships with institutional investors. Those are going to focus on our larger transactions, right? So properties we buy that are more than forty million dollars and and those those big institutional investors have a lot of capital to deploy. And they like to acquire, you know, even bigger assets. So it's a, it's a good lineup of sort of who the profile of the investors are with what the size of the investment you know, properties are. So
1: we've got it aligned kind of in that way. So the commingled fund minimum investment of one hundred thousand. And then what what do you expect the hold period to be? Or is there a minimum hold period as well?
0: Uh, well, well, there's a there's a I think it's a two year investment period and a five year hold and then a divestiture period. Um, you know, we'll probably sell that early on assets we will sell. You know, we're not going to hold them all, although there could be some value to be gained from a portfolio, a homogenous portfolio that could be sold at a premium. So we'll be evaluating that. But, you know, something we buy in 2024, you know, we may be selling in 2029 by way of example, uh, you know, liquidating those because we'll have executed the business plan. We'll buy it, implement a value add business plan, have it be stabilized and then, you know, and then likely sell the asset.
1: Today's Shore Initiative In Your Ears podcast featured Fred Pierce, president and CEO of Pierce Education Properties, recorded on August 26th, 2023. You have been listening to SHORE in Your Ears, the official podcast series of the SHORE Initiative. Please visit us at SHORE.international. That's S H U R E.international.